I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We've crossed an important line in the book of 1 Samuel with the introduction of a boy named David. Last week we saw the Lord speak to his grieving prophet Samuel and say, Go to the town of Bethlehem and find the man Jesse, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This boy that the Lord had seen and provided for himself will be the next king. He will follow Saul and shepherd the people of God. And we saw the plan and choice of God last week. Well, what about this week? Who's at the forefront? Well, when I did my first read-through of this passage, it just seems to, without question, be the Spirit of God. We read in verse 13 that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David as Samuel anoints him. And then in the very next verse, we read the opposite, that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Spirit is taken away. And immediately we read of the terrible fallout in the life of Saul. So it's the Spirit then that's at the forefront of this passage. It's His working and His presence that I think should be central to our minds. And so I want to begin briefly by reintroducing you to the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I don't know everyone's Christian experience here. I don't know your church or worship experience. Maybe there's some of you uh, who might even get a little uncomfortable uh, with me standing up here and starting with the Spirit. Maybe you've been in worship services before where Maybe there was some screaming and dancing and running around and falling out. So it might make you a little nervous for the pastor to speak of the Holy Spirit. Others of you may come from traditions on the opposite end of the spectrum where the Holy Spirit is viewed more coldly. You know, it's easier to relate to God the Father and God the Son. But what about the Spirit? He's more vague. Mysterious, distant, impersonal. Again, the Father and Son are easier to grasp. The Father sends the Son, and the Son dies on the cross. But we have trouble comprehending the Spirit. I think it might be helpful just to begin with the Hebrew word for Spirit. It's a word that you may not be familiar with, but you'll be familiar with the meaning. The word is ruach. You have to make that sound in the back of your throat, ruach. And it means wind, breath, or air in motion. Right? This is something we can all understand. I mean, think of wind. We can't see wind, but we can feel it. The girls and I walked out of the donut shop yesterday, and immediately a gust of wind hit us and made us shiver. We see the wind move these pine trees out here. We see the wind scatter unraked leaves 
across our yard. We see the wind cause ripples and waves to form on bodies of water. The wind will mess up our hair and slam an exterior door. We're very familiar with the wind. And then there's our breath. The air that keeps us alive. The air that you can see on a cold day. The air that you feel shoot from your lungs when you sneeze or cough. It's air in motion departing the body. And that's at the core of the meaning of ruach. Wind, breath, air in motion. Well, what happens when you do some simple addition? And you add God or the Lord to ruach. Well, you have the spirit of the Lord. Who is God himself. Actively and personally engaging with and working within his created world. Like air that comes from the lungs and keeps us alive, like wind that makes us shiver and scatters leaves, the Spirit of the Lord is his going out into creation and working to accomplish everything planned in the mind of God. It's the Spirit of God that's hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, verse 2. He's there actively working in the account of creation. It's the Spirit of God that opened the wombs of barren women like Sarah, Hannah, and the mother of Samson. It's the Spirit of God that will later overshadow a virgin so that she conceives a child. It's the Spirit of God that is active in the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. By His power, Moses works signs and wonders. And you'll also notice that it's a strong wind that parts the Red Sea And turns the sea floor into dry ground so that the people can pass safely through. It's through the Spirit of the Lord rushing on Samson that he has the strength to tear a lion to pieces and kill 30 men and burst the bonds that held his arms. We've already seen this happen in 1 Samuel. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul that he might be equipped. To be king. Saul speaks God's words to his people. Saul gets angry. Saul raises an army. And in all these instances, with Samson, with Saul, with David, it's not that they looked deep within themselves and found some hidden inner strength that they needed in order to do what needed to be done. Their strength was alien. It came from outside of themselves. It came from God himself, from his spirit. And this, of course, carries over into the New Testament. The spirit of the Lord descends upon Jesus Christ at his baptism. He descends upon the apostles and believers at Pentecost. 
Supernatural power is displayed. Signs and wonders are done. Sinners repent and believe. In the New Testament, we're given a clearer view of the plan of God and the specific roles performed by each person within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the Father who plans and chooses. It's the Son who comes and obeys and sacrifices and rises from the grave. And it's the Spirit who applies the work of Christ's salvation to each believer. What does that mean? To apply the work of Christ's salvation to each believer. Well, I hit on this in my opening prayer. It comes from Charles Spurgeon. He describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in one sermon. And he gives, he gives this list. He says, the Spirit brings sinners to a knowledge of salvation. He brings to life all whom the Father gives to the Son. The Spirit shows us our need for redemption. He cuts off our worthless hopes. He destroys our refuge of lies. He will give faith to us. He works within us every grace. He keeps our faith alive. He cleanses us and drives away the depravity within and will at last present us before the throne of God, spotless and faultless. The divine spirit is the same in both the Old and New Testaments. And when we know who He is and what He does, I think we're better able to comprehend the blessing given to the boy David and also the catastrophic loss experienced by Saul. So we'll see that in just a moment, but first let's pray together. Almighty God, this is your holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Father, we do ask that your spirit would work through its hearing in the lives of your people. Would you give us ears to hear that which you would have for us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for the sake of context, I'm going to begin in verse 10 of chapter 16. So we'll start in verse 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord 
tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit of God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well And the harmful spirit departed from him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So last week we saw the Lord tell Samuel, I have provided for myself a king from among the sons of Jesse. And once that forgotten final son is brought in from tending the sheep, The Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is who I've seen. This is who I've provided to shepherd my people. So Samuel gets up and he approaches David. He anoints his head with oil in the midst of his brothers. And then the Lord does something. His spirit rushes upon David. He's not only seen... David as the next king. He will equip David to be the next king. Do you remember what happens in the very next chapter of 1 Samuel? It's one of the most well-known narratives in the Bible. We are getting very close to David and Goliath. It's the very next chapter. And have you ever thought about all the how questions in that story? How is it that David is the only one who hears the words of Goliath and is offended to the point where he's going to do something? How is it that David is not afraid to go out and face Goliath when every other soldier is terrified? How is David able, with only a sling and a stone, able to bring down the giant Philistine? I mean, was it just due to the courage and skill of this young man? No, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon this young man. The same Spirit that enabled Samson to tear a lion to pieces is now on David. That's why David is indignant 
that this pagan would bring reproach on Israel and stand on the battlefield and defy the armies of the living God. The Spirit of the Lord rushed on this young man. That's why this stone finds its mark and the giant crashes to the ground. Don't forget about the presence and work and power of the Spirit and give all the credit to David. God chose this young man and also puts his spirit upon him. And then don't miss those important four words in verse 13. From that day forward. Unlike Saul, the spirit of the Lord is not going to depart from David. Samuel's about to leave. Samuel's about to go home. But God's spirit doesn't leave David. In his commentary, Dale Ralph Davis pointed out that David is not just equipped for a future kingship, he's equipped for conflict. You know, this young boy's life is about to drastically change. It's about to get complicated and difficult and stressful. The Lord choosing him and Sending his spirit upon him means that he's not, he's now going to have much bigger problems than keeping the predators away from his father's sheep. He now has an unstable, paranoid, failing king to deal with. Ralph Davis writes, quote, David meets endless trouble. The envy, anger, and plots of Saul from chapter 18 on. David, the man with the spirit, will be hunted and betrayed, trapped and escaping, hiding in caves, living in exile, driven to the edge, right to the end of 1 Samuel. We must see this larger view of verse 13 in the context of the whole. The spirit comes, the trouble begins. End quote. David's life is about to get a whole lot Harder. And don't we see the same thing in the life of great David's greater son? You know, at his baptism, the Spirit of God descends and rests upon Jesus. The voice from heaven declares, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then what happens? Mark says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, we aren't told a whole lot about the early life of Jesus. Apart from when his parents forget him and leave him in Jerusalem and come back and find him three days later in the temple. Besides that, we don't know much. But after his baptism, after the Spirit descends upon him, we see that the conflict begins and that conflict will remain all the way to the cross. I think we'd be helped to take note of this. That life doesn't get easier after we come to Christ. I mean, some people mistakenly expect that. And then they're shocked and surprised when trouble comes. Don't be. The Spirit comes on David and life gets hard. The Spirit comes on Jesus Christ and immediately He's alone in the wilderness being tempted. When the Spirit brings about saving faith and indwells the Christian, 
trouble's going to follow. I mean, you can remember Christ's words when he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He tells his disciples, hey, I'm, I'm telling you what's coming so that you'll have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And again, I think this just highlights the importance of the local church. The fellowship of the saints. The strengthening nourishment of the sacraments. And sitting under the ministry of the word and prayer. Remember that Paul would go to the local churches and strengthen the souls of the disciples. He'd go there and encourage them to continue into faith. And what would he tell them? That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You are not the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus could receive the Spirit and then be driven alone into the wilderness to be tempted. You and I will not fare as well as he did in isolation. May he drive us into the local church where our souls will be cared for and strengthened for the coming conflict. All right, we've seen the Spirit of the Lord rush on David. Let's move on to it departing from King Saul. Very quickly, uh, what follows is meant to serve as contrast. That's what's important here. Contrast, not chronology. Meaning, we don't know if verse 14 happened immediately after verse 13. There are things said later about David being a man of valor, a man of war, which paints a very different picture from the young forgotten shepherd boy in the first half of chapter 16. So some scholars believe that you could part these two verses and uh, the chronology would have all of chapter 17 in between these two verses. We don't know for sure. But don't let that bother you. Chronology isn't the point. The point is the presence or the lack of the Spirit in the lives of these two men. In verse 14, we read, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So scenery has changed. We've gone from rural Bethlehem to Saul's court, and we find Saul in a very dark place. Saul had rejected the word of the Lord, and so the Lord had rejected Saul as king. We just covered that in chapter 15. The spirit of the Lord that had come to him earlier in life has left the building. And in his place, a harmful spirit has been sent. You know, the literal translation here of the Hebrew is evil or bad. A harmful, evil, bad Spirit has been sent, don't miss this, from the Lord to torment Saul. Now, commentaries are all over the place here. They are not very helpful. Some say this is a demonic spirit that God permits to attack Saul. Some say that this is an angel, not inherently evil, but it's an angel sent to harm Saul Some say that the evil in this context should be understood in 
not in moral terms, but rather as an indication of misery, distress. I don't know. I don't want to say more or less than the text says. But what I am confident we see here is the judgment of God upon King Saul. Saul is being judged because of his continued sin and continued unwillingness to listen to the word of God and do what he says. And I found it very helpful to compare this to the fall of Jerusalem. Right? The Lord first dwelt with his people in a tent, the tabernacle. That tent followed them around in their wilderness journey. Later, after Solomon finished the temple in Jerusalem, the Lord would come and fill the temple and be in the midst of his people in the city of Jerusalem. But in time, just like King Saul, God's people would cease to listen to his voice. They would do what they thought was right. They worshipped other gods. They fell into evil. They rebelled against their covenant Lord. And what happened? Well, in the years 587 and 586 BC, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. And then the Lord sent the armies of Babylon as an act of judgment. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city. In time, Jerusalem fell Those who did not die in the defense or did not die of starvation were carried off to live in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And that didn't just happen. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just acting out of complete autonomy. He was sent. In Jeremiah 25, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words. Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. God's hard-hearted people had refused to listen So his glory departs from their presence. And then a hostile foreign king was sent by God to do them harm. Speaking here of Jerusalem, the author of Lamentations writes, The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. So what we see happen in the life of King Saul In chapter 16, we will see happen on a much bigger scale to the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The fall of Jerusalem is just an intensification of God's judgment upon unrepentant sin. And if you're going from one tiny little uh, micro case up to a more corporate sense, the judgment of Jerusalem, we can go even bigger than that, can't we? Doesn't this point ahead to an even larger, more troubling picture? Don't we have a picture of hell? I mean, there's a warning for the reader here. 
A warning of what God himself will do to all those who continue in sin and refuse to listen and refuse to repent. A far greater torment will come. And it's something the Lord will do. Jesus says, this is in the parable of the net, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think we see some gnashing of teeth here in Saul's court. His judgment is a warning of the far greater torment that souls in hell will experience as a result as a result of God's deliberate and eternal punishment for sin. Don't get hung up over what exactly this harmful spirit was that came to torment Saul. Mark it as a warning and flee to the cross. Mark it as a warning and make David's prayer in Psalm 51 your own. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Dear saints, from what we've seen in just these two verses, I hope it's clear that the withdrawal of God's Spirit is the worst possible calamity. And the presence of God's Spirit is the greatest possible help. Well, what do we see in the remainder of the passage? Saul's servants aid their king. They say, Lord, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let us seek out a man who can play music. So that when you're afflicted, all will be made well. This is music therapy thereafter. Saul consents. One of his servants says, I know a guy. And so David, the young man God provided for himself to be king, is also provided, that's ironic, isn't it? For Saul to skillfully play his instrument and bring Saul relief. The chapter ends saying that whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Two things for us to consider before we end. First, the church is to play a similar role in the world as David played in the life of King Saul. David, this young man who has the Spirit of God, this young man who the Lord is with, verse 18, comes and ministers to the rejected king 
that will soon hate him and throw spears at him and try to track him down and kill him. Dale Ralph Davis writes this great quote. Should our call not follow a similar pattern? As Saul will hate David, and as he is rejected by God, yet sustained by David's service, so the world hates Christ's people, John 15. Yet in its doomed state is only benefited by them. They are the ones who are the salt of the earth. That is, who keep society and culture from rotting into complete decay. Who keep the world from being worse than it is. They are a divinely granted restraint upon the earth's putrefaction. They keep the world from drowning in its own vomit, which strangely enough it craves. Not that Christians have all the answers. But woe betide the world if God's people, for all their faults, are not in it. End quote. And what an example for us. David didn't receive the Spirit of God and then hide out in total isolation out in the pasture with the sheep. Strengthened by the Spirit, he entered into that God-forsaken place. He used the gifts he'd been given and brought a desperately needed service. I mean, we've got a good, we've got a good bit of medical people here. What would our hospital look like if all the Christians just quit and went and worked elsewhere? What would our, uh, what would our schools look like if all the Christian teachers and administrations just quit and went elsewhere? One of our families in this congregation just adopted a baby girl, what would happen if Christians got out of the adoption business? What would happen to our government if all the Christians left elected office? How might your office or your neighborhood denigrate if all those indwelt with the Spirit of Christ just siloed off to live far away and only live and work together? Young David was salt and light in the court of Saul. Just as you, dear Christian, are to be salt and light where God has providentially placed you. The young William Wilberforce, after coming to faith, he came up to John Newton and told Newton, Hey, I'm thinking about leaving Parliament. I want to go into the ministry. And John Newton said, Don't you dare. Stay where God has placed you. And Wilberforce stayed, and he fought for decades, and finally brought about the end of the slave trade in the United Kingdom. That's the first thing we see, an example for ourselves in the life of David. The second and final thing to note in this account, we see the Spirit on David, and David going and ministering to a man in torment and bringing relief. And do we not have a shadow of the work of Christ? 
I could have gone back to Luke 4. I did this a couple weeks ago with the Amalekites. Isaiah 61 and then Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me bringing good news. I could have gone back there, but I wanted to give you something different this week. In my study, I stumbled across some words attributed to Athanasius, an African pastor in the early church. These are his words. The word took bodily form so that we might receive the Holy Spirit. God became the bearer of a body so that men might be bearers of the Spirit. That's good news. That's the good news that we are to herald. That the greater David, the Son of God, took on human flesh and experienced the greatest harm and torment. As he hung on the cross with all the weight of sin upon his head, his father departed from him. He was forsaken. He was abandoned. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why did he leave the glories of heaven? Why go to the cross? Why did his father depart from him in that most terrible moment? Because he loved his bride, the church. And just as David's sweet music brought peace to the heart of Saul, the sweet music of the gospel of grace brings peace to our troubled, anxious, and weary souls. Now, there is a need every day for David to come in and bring that sweet music to the ears of King Saul. And we too, daily, must plead that we would hear that sweet strain that we might be made well, that we might find refreshment for our souls, that we might have our wandering hearts called back and have the joy of his great salvation restored to our lives. I want to end with some words written by John Newton in 1779 that I thought were appropriate. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Weak is the effort of my heart. And cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Till then, I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath. And may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. Let's pray. O God, the Holy Spirit, would you move upon our disordered hearts? Would you brighten our souls with the pure light of truth? Would you fulfill 
in us the glory of your divine offices. Would you be our comforter, our light, our guide, our sanctifier? Take the things of Christ and show them to our souls that we may daily learn more of his love and grace and compassion and faithfulness and beauty. Lead us to the cross and show us his wounds. May we there see our sins as the nails that fixed him, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, the sword that pierced him. Help us to find in his death the reality and immensity of his love. Open for us the wondrous volumes of truth in those words. It is finished. Increase our faith in the clear knowledge of atonement achieved, satisfaction made, guilt done away, my debt paid, my sins forgiven, my person redeemed, my soul saved, hell vanquished, Heaven opened, eternity made mine. O Holy Spirit, deepen in us these saving lessons. Write them upon our hearts. We ask in the name of the Son. Amen.